Welcome to Blog Talk Radio in High Fidelity. Welcome to the Along Came a Writer Network. Opinions expressed in our shows do not necessarily reflect those of the network. Welcome to Publishing Lane with your host, Margie Lane Klubine, Executive Director of Write Integrity Press. Hello, this is Publishing Lane, and I'm Margie Lane Klubine. And again with us this month is author and freelance editor Faye Lamb. Hi, Faye. Did you have a good January? I did, except for a, just a tough-to-beat cold, and I conquered it, and January was great. We celebrated my youngest granddaughter's birthday. We took in a Gator tennis match. Go Gators! Oh, and, and I also was invited to speak at the Space Coast Writers Guild, so it's been busy so far. <laughs> oh my gosh, that's awesome. That's awesome. I love it when you can when you can do things like speaking. I actually do have some speaking things coming up in the next couple of months that I'm excited about. I'm, if we have time, I'll chat with you about those at the end because I haven't done a lot of that. I know you do a lot of speaking. I haven't done a lot of that. This, I'm kind of a newbie at it, even though I was a teacher for years. But I am so glad you're feeling better. I hated to hear that you were feeling sick. You know, it seems like the flu has really dominated this year. Yeah, mine was really a cold, but it started with my husband who had a sinus infection. But I was at church yesterday, or not yesterday, I'm losing track of time, on Sunday, and this dear lady told me that she had a flu shot, and since she's had that shot, she's been fighting fighting the flu ever since. So I just think the flu's getting meaner. Yeah, Yeah. I'm afraid I'm going to agree with you on that, but I got to tell you, you know, it's like that with sickness. It's sometimes even when folks aren't sick, they just kind of feel like they are sick because everybody around them is sick. My husband called mm-hmm. last night. He was he was working late. He's had to work late for a couple of weeks now. And he was working late and he was talking just really, really soft like this. And today the poor guy isn't talking at all. And I went, he stayed home from work and I'm getting him chicken soup and, you know, hot apple cider and stuff like that. And I walked back and he said, can I have a little more apple cider? And I start whispering back to him just because he's whispering to me. It's just, it's just contagious. It's almost, the attitude is almost as contagious as the illness itself. But you know, that kind of reminds me of a t-shirt. When I was in college, there was this guy, he was, he was one of the cheerleaders at the college uh, at at East Texas State University. It's now Texas A&M and Commerce. Um, And he was a really good friend and he always wore the same t-shirt. Yeah. I'm I'm actually telling tales here because he really did always wear the same t-shirt. But it had a great T-shirt. It said, enthusiasm Enthusiasm is contagious. Let's start an epidemic. I just loved it. That sounds great. You know, the world wants us to start grumbling and murmuring, but God says the opposite. We need to joy with enthusiasm, and we need to have an unceasingly grateful heart. Oh, that is so true. Oh, but it's so tough. You know, I find when I'm around people, I take on the attitudes of the people around me. I don't know. Maybe Mm -hmm. I'm just kind of a sponge. I'll even talk like they'll talk sometimes. But I'll tell you, whenever I'm stressed out, my whole house is stressed out. My kids, my my family, my husband, even my dog. I got to tell you, though, that's part of our chat today. We're going to finish our discussion on setting. So those of you that are listening to Faye and I just kind of chat back and forth, um, we started talking about setting in the last months back in, okay, you might be hearing my dog bark. There's somebody walking outside and he's throwing a fit. (laughs) Um, He is quite the protector. We started talking about um, setting last month back in January and about how even though it's not one of the number one key element, it's kind of like always there. And so we're going to be talking mm-hmm. more about that today. We didn't quite get finished with it, but, I mean, we got really deep into it. If you want to go back and look at the first one that we did, that you can look back on the um, Publishing Lane page, and you'll find um, the January show, which was on settings. Um, 
we're going to talk about what must be included in an environment. One of the things that has to be included in that environment, in that setting, wherever the location is, is the attitude of the main character as the scene begins. Now, this is really important in order to let the reader know what kind of mindset they need to be in as they read the scene. Um, even if you know that the book is a romance, you aren't necessarily going to be ready for a poignant romance or a romantic comedy. You, you kind of have to have that set for you. So it's also called uh -huh. the mood or the emotion of the scene. Now, when it comes to writing, I am a planner. Oh, no. Who am I fooling? When it comes to anything, I am a planner. I have lists everywhere. But even before I begin the story, I outline the tar out of it. Um, I use Scrivener. I used to use a big science board, and I put little sticky notes all over it. But now I just, I just do that in Scrivener. Um, I usually set up 8 to 12 plot points, and then I add 2 to 3 scenes for each plot point. Um, and then I jot down a couple of sentences for each of those scenes, just so I'll know how the scene goes. And just for those of you hanging out and listening, that becomes my synopsis. It's kind of an outline, but I can actually download that in, in Scrivener and dress it up and make sure it's grammatically correct. And that's my synopsis. It's kind of a sweet little trick I learned. Um, but once I have all the bones, and that's just the bones to my scenes, then I go back and add a little bit of muscle and skin before I actually start writing. First thing I do is identify the setting for the scene, and then I add a mood or an emotion that's initiated that initiates this particular scene. Um, you know, if there if it's something that just happened, what this is, what this scene is is going to feel like from the beginning. And I also make a note of whether this is an action scene that initiates something or a reaction scene to something that just happened. And all of that all of that pulls back into allowing the reader to figure out what to expect from the scene on the get-go. Marking the action or the reaction goes a long way to setting the tone of the scene. Do you ever note the mood or the emotion of a scene ahead of time, Faye? Well, I'd like to tell you I don't outline or I don't set the tone of the scene, but since we were going to talk about this, I sat down and I gave it some major thought about, well, how do I come up with this stuff? And I was saying to someone um, the other day, um, I think my husband's favorite saying is, Kent never did anything, but then he plans a tar out of it, and that's not wrong at all, because my way of doing things is that I do, and if I do it wrong, I do it again. <laughs> yeah, oh, there you go. <laughs> maybe that's not as smart as my husband. However, <laughs> I realized when I was thinking about this, that I do plan everything. I do have it. It's just not written down. It's all in my head. I know the scenes and how they're going to play out. I might then place them on like a scene card just so that I can map my way through a story and, and find out where I am or if I'm going off track. But usually everything's in my head. And, and the overall tone of the story I try to decide, okay, is it a serious story or am I going to use a little levity to get a message across? And, for example, in my novel I'm working on right now, Delilah, uh, I have a yes, very serious yes, subject Delilah. going on. Yeah. But my yeah. readers have come to expect a little humor from even the most serious of those novels in that series. So in my head, I had this opening scene all planned out for months before I put it on paper. The scene sets the tone for the novel. So I hope that the readers are going to laugh at Delilah because, well, she actually deserves it if you've read the series, and pride <laughs> is a big issue with her. So, in fact, every time when she's getting paid back, she's seeking this humbleness, and she's she's dishing out humbleness, and things seem to, to put her on the winning side, The fact, the, beside the fact that she's trying to kind of concede in battle. Yet the oh, overall wow. story has an it has another issue for Delilah to deal with, and my hope is that I can tug on my readers' hearts. So the scenes in my head, I, I'm hoping that the that the reader will have have just gobs and gobs of tissue with them, 
And and oh. here's how I look at it. It's like a teeter totter. By the way, and wait, 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 wait. Right... Hang on a second. Uh-huh. Hang on a second, okay. Faye. Thank you for the warning. I'm just telling you now. I'll have a box because I, I appreciate the warning. When I get Delilah, I'm going to need a box sitting beside me. Because okay. the readers, if the readers have to grab a tissue, then I'm going to need a box. <laughs> Good. That means it works. <laughs> yeah. There you go. But I, I kind of picture myself in each scene, and I'm standing on a teeter-totter, and it's like I'm trying to balance in the middle. I'm not one of the kids on the end. I'm standing, and I'm trying to keep that teeter-totter on a straight plane. Not uh-huh. I don't want any emotional tugs or j- yanks or jerks. I want to be able to lower it on one side a bit and lift it on one side a bit. So uh, that's, how I, that's how I look at it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, I... I actually have a a trick for setting the mood of a scene. Um, Now, okay, so I've got a scene. um, As a writer, I've already decided on my setting, maybe a car or a living room or a diner, like from Counterpoint. I had a lot of scenes in the diner. Um, Then I choose an object in the setting that defines the mood of the scene. So if my mood, if my main character, and when I say the mood of the scene, I'm talking about the initial um, emotion of the main character. And so if, mm-hmm. if the initial emotion of the main character is annoyed, for instance, then I might place a buzzing mosquito or excessive heat or humidity or something like that, or maybe even a car alarm outside that can define that mood, can set that tone. Um, I have a scene in my latest book, Ain't Misbehaving. It just came out a couple weeks ago. Um, My main character is Anna Lee, and she's about to go visit her probation officer for the first time. And she's on the street in downtown Dallas. Okay, downtown Dallas is so much like the skyline of most large cities. It is always changing. Um, Mm There is at least one crane and one skyscraper in construction at all times. There's there's something always going on. And so Annalie is watching the workers down the street just a little bit, and they're walking along the narrow beams of this structure that's going up, and she literally visualizes one of them falling. I mean, she's she and her, her muscles tighten, her stomach twists and knots as she's she's seeing these walkers across. And this sets the tone for that scene because she's about to walk into her probation officer's office for the first time and it also goes back toward the end of it um toward the end of the scene after she's met her probation officer and everything is totally not what she was hoping for and now she feels like she's up on one of those high bars but it's more like a pirate plank a plank and she's walking the plank on a pirate ship because she is about to plummet and fall into you know, the netherworld, whatever. But that was kind of the emotion. And I got to tell you, when I when I was reading this, as I was reading, I wrote it several years ago, when I was reading it for editing purposes, it was like it was a brand new book to me. And I was reading it, I, I was getting all twisted up and tight as she was watching these guys walk. And of course, I actually do. I don't drive downtown very often without getting my stomach and muscles, not only, or stomach and knots, not only because of the guys walking on the big, tall buildings above me, but also because of the traffic. So that's just part of oh, it. Oh, I can imagine. I can imagine. <laughs> yeah. it, it, I love oh, my I hubby. Was, I was in, oh, my husband always drives in the big city. Are you kidding? I'm <laughs> yeah. scared to death. Yeah. Well, I I was going to share with you the way I do it, and I was going to, I wanted to, I was thinking, okay, my first scene of Delilah, but then I began to think about the second scene, and and I laughed, so I'm going to kind of talk about it a little bit and show you how I balance the mood, um, that, that, that teeter-totter thing. The setting starts off in the second scene in the book. It's It's very somber. I use deep point of view. And I, I use it first to set the tone because John Turner is the judge that Delilah has used to torment when she was a judge. And he has just given her her comeuppance. The last scene ends with, with a little bit of a laugh. But Delilah's response left him without the pleasure he hoped he would receive at the payback. So he's walking out of the, cha- out of the um, courtroom and he's going toward his chambers and he sees some friends in the hallway. He stops and chats. 
Well, then I bring on the secondary characters, and they help me set his mood a little bit further. We already know that he's not, he's kind of condemning himself. He feels bad for what he does. But then when he looks over at his, his judicial assistant, she's sitting behind her desk, and she's nodding her head, and she's frowning. And she is not happy with him because she knows what he's done. And he want, she wanted him to be above that fray. So yeah. he's, now he's feeling worse. And then she tells him, and you've got a friend, and he's not very happy, and he's sitting in your office. Well, he looks over, and he's not sitting in his office, but Gideon Tabor, who my readers uh-huh. will know as the, the first heroine of the series, is standing with a scowl on his face, arms crossed, and he's just waiting for John to come into the office. So John kind of trounces by him, scoots around him, and Gibbs stands in the doorway. And he and he's still shaking his head because and he's still in the line of the secretary and he's still shaking his head. And while he's shaking his head slowly, he's also closing the door slowly. And then it clicks. And Gibbs burst out laughing and he says, I told you she'd take the bait And then you find out that the guys were behind planning it. And and what and it becomes a there's a funny moment there. But but you still have to see John. He's their conversation then turns, and you get from the conversation that Gideon still thinks it's funny, but John's really thinking, you know, that's really not what I should have done. Enter another uh-huh. secondary character who's familiar from the first book, and it gets a little funnier until the very end, and something happens that becomes that changes the whole mood to a uh oh moment. So you can see where I'm stepping on each side of that (laughs) teeter-totter. Yes, yes, you really do step on each side of that teeter-totter. I love that. I can't wait to read this book. (laughs) Okay, well, I have another example, and I I know I'm sharing from my own books, but in all honesty, those are the ones that I know the best right now. Um, At the very beginning of Ain't Misbehaving, Annalie is waiting to go inside her court hearing. And her mother is pacing in circles and she's just, she's, she's literally following, following the same track that the ceiling fan is, um, that is, that's moving in real slow circles directly above Annalie. Now I got to tell you, and at one point, and I'm going to read that section in a little bit, but Annalie's actually looking, watching, she leans her head back. She's watching that ceiling fan and it's just barely turning around. Think of the old southern ceiling fan that just barely turns just to stir the air a little bit. And that's oh, what this yeah. fan is doing. Yeah. Well, that's what this fan is doing. And it not only defines the scene because Annalie is just, she's just, she's vapid at that point. She's empty. She's like a vacuum. It defines the entire book at the beginning, the mood of the entire book. She is aimless. She is wandering through her life. She has no purpose. She has no focus. And she's just basically going in circles. And her life is about to change and by her own hand. So it's really interesting um, how that, I didn't write it on purpose that way. I think the Lord must have done it because I read into it afterwards. And I'm like, oh, that's cool. But it it wasn't intentional. But that ceiling fan really epitomizes the her beginning, her her uh, where she is at the beginning of the story, her brokenness. And, of course, mm-hmm. she has a character arc. And so she is no longer broken at the end of the book. But she her it starts out with her brokenness. And that fan is, is really the epitome of it. The setting is important, um, even though it wasn't one of the cl- the critical elements that we went through back in the fall. And for those of you that missed out on that, oh my goodness, you missed something because Faye had some amazing talks and discussions. We both did. We both we both talked and discussed. But yes. wow, she has some great insight into the main elements of a story. Um, and so she went through all of those and setting was not one of those, but it, it is critical. In fact, it, it kind of is the foundation for all the rest of them. You might remember Faye's description of a car. Faye, you want to give us that one again? Because it yeah, was just so it's good. A, it's a, it is a good summary. So we start with plot. Plot is our vehicle that drives the plot forward. Pacing 
is the accelerator or the decelerator on the car. And we have to always remember that our plot vehicle does not have a brake because that involves backstory, and our story should never go backward. They must always go forward. Conflict, then, is the fuel for the vehicle, and the lead characters are the drivers, and the secondary characters are they're most often the passengers in the vehicle. And, and Margie... Uh, this is Margie's thing, and I and she hit it. And I'm like, well, I might add an eight elbow. I might be talked into maybe taking my sub element under character and making it a, a a major element because she's right. Description as as seen through the eyes of our characters is actually the road that the is that the vehicle travels because. Our characters only define what they see that's important to the story, like Annalise's sight in the scene of the high beam workers and her focus on the fan. They set the tone and the mood for those particular scenes. And like Margie said, the fan, basically, I've read Ain't Misbehaving. It's a great novel, and Thank I and that, that does describe her because, because – Annalie is is such an endearing character, but she is aimless and almost clueless about life outside her circle. Oh, and it's so, so true. When and that and that's a road that she's on, and as she travels that road, the the descriptions change, and the tone uh-huh. of the story changes because Annalie is changing. Yeah, yeah. You know, I, I thank you for saying that because I just. This story, oh, like cool. I said, I can't hardly believe I read it, I wrote it because it feels like a brand new story to me. When when I started going through it for editing, and as I'm as I'm editing it, all these little things that we've been talking about are just falling into place, and I'm like, oh, this is so cool! I actually did this, and I didn't mean to. <laughs> I love how that works. Um, but yes. you know, one of your elements, okay, ta- taking it a step further, um, one of your main elements is um, dialogue. And, Mm -hmm. you know, we talked about dialogue in depth back, I think it was in December. And those, again, you can find that on the publishing lane list if you want to take a listen to that particular, um, that particular discussion that we had. Um, One of the biggest problems that I see when I get manuscripts from people that are wanting to publish with Right Integrity Press, um, and, and I do get those manuscripts, I get a lot of proposals and a lot of manuscripts for uh, publishing purposes from, from, like I said, from people that are hoping to publish. But I have to say before I go any further, right now we are not accepting any submissions, no proposals, no manuscripts, not until June. Our schedule is completely filled, and I dedicate that time to my authors and getting their books out and making them the best that they can be. So until June, we are not accepting proposals. And you can keep an update on that. You can take a look at writeintegrity.com and look at the submissions tab, and it's right up there at the top. And if if we start accepting submissions again, when we start accepting submissions again, I'll be changing that, and so it'll be updated. You won't have to worry about, oh, my goodness, are they or are they not? Because at this point, we are not, but we will be soon. Um, but like I said, one of the biggest problems that I see in that is that I I start reading a new scene and it's full of dialogue. The dialogue can even be good dialogue, but there's no place. There's no there's no grounding. There's no room. I, I, it's in fact one of my critique buds call this floating heads, and she might have gotten it from somewhere else. So I'm not uh, I'm not coining the phrase and saying it's hers, but. It, she calls it floating heads, and I literally picture balloons talking to one another because there's no, there's no atmosphere, there's no environment, and and likewise, there's no mood to it to the to that particular mm-hmm. scene, um, where the only things that are connecting the scene of the story are the words themselves, and so it's real important to subtly create a real feeling place. So the dialogue becomes part of the story. Um, setting is crucial to every every single aspect in, uh, in any in any form. And um, Faye, your book, The Art of Characterization, has something about this in particular, right? 
Well, yes, about um, how you bring in description through your the lead character for that scene and only what is important. And what is important can often be what you need to show the readers about their character. And um, I do have um, an example uh, from The Art of Characterization. I want to stress that this one, you're not going to hear any dialogue, but I want to show you how important and you'll see how important deep point of view comes in. Now we don't want we don't want pages and pages and pages of someone in deep point of view. But right. I'm only give I'm I'm gonna give an example here and it's just a short look into this guy's life so that you can see how important it is to even with dialogue, deep point of view and action are very important to set the mode. Like you, like you said, Annalise's mother circling around and around. It it mm-hmm. it was it was important to that scene. It set the tone. So I'm going to read a little excerpt from a little little story that's kind of still playing in my head, but I used it in my book, The Art of Characterization, just to show how important the deep point of view can be with setting and with teaching or teaching with showing your reader a lot about your character that they might not realize you're you're really relaying information to them because they're seeing it through that character's head. So here I go. Wolf McGregor straightened his tie and buttoned his suit jacket and then descended the mahogany stairs. He checked his ruby cufflinks. His daughter Annie would no doubt tell him at some point in the evening that his age was showing. No one wore cufflinks these days, but he enjoyed the elegance of the costly gems. His daughter was usually the first one ready for an important night. He took her delay as a sign that she was serious about her assignment. Wolf sat on the Queen Anne sofa and looked up at the life-size portrait of his best creation. The painting hung over his white marble fireplace. He might be a little biased, but Wolf knew quality. His daughter was the most beautiful woman he'd ever known. She was the finest master thief New York would ever know. His gaze moved to the gilded frame on the opposite wall. Oh, the picture in front of the frame was worth a fortune. The painting behind it, however, was of innumerable worth. With it, Annie had proven she'd learned all he had to teach her. Tonight, though, he'd charged her with stealing a different kind of treasure, a young man's heart. So you can see in that deep point of view, Wolf's told us a lot about himself, hasn't he? He's he's told us that he likes elegance, that he lives in elegance. He treasures his daughter, but then you also, with that deep point of view, you kind of leave a little doubt in the mind. Why does he treasure his daughter? Is it because he loves her so much, or is it because of what she can do for him? And we know from his thinking that Wolf is a master thief himself, and we know he's up to something. So all of that came from deep point of view. Now take that deep point of view and move it into a scene where there's dialogue, and your, your lead character is dialoguing with another character, and then you will... Add, and and I think you've talked about, I think you're going to mention about attribute tags and things like that. You don't need them because it's all there. You're sharing that deep point of view. Right, right. One of the things that, okay, wait a minute, before I go further on this, um, I need to know, is that come, did that paragraph, that section you read, did that actually come from a book besides the art of characterization? Is that a story you're conjuring? It's in my head. It's oh, one let it come out! <laughs> let it come out! That sounds like a great story. Okay, well, okay, you know, I share the I share more scenes in there, so there, so you'll get a little bit more of it, and you'll see where I'm going oh, with the story oh. if you read that. <laughs> I'm gonna have to. I'm gonna have to read that one too. So, okay. Well, one of the things that we discussed <laughs> la- the last couple of months was the way that you can set your stage with subtlety. Um, 15, 20 years ago, and and frankly, through most of the classics of literature, the setting was the first thing you read about. You opened to the first page, and the story began with a page of two or two of just elaborate descriptions, grounding the location, um, grounding the ambiance, just think Wuthering Heights or The Grapes Mm -hmm. of Wrath. These stories were practically 
poetic. I mean, the descriptions were amazing and they were beautiful. But in today's genre writing, you'll lose the reader faster than anything. Uh, readers of genre fiction want impact. They want to be immersed into the plot line immediately. They want to have a reason to turn the page. Yet the scene still has to be there. It has to be rooted in an atmosphere, regardless of the genre. Um, this atmosphere is your story world. Now, it could be a real place like a building. Um, for instance, a building on Haskell Street in downtown Dallas that housed the after-school children for my book, Ain't Misbehaving. That was an actual, that is an actual building. Um, it's, it's actually mm -hmm. four different apartments. And unfortunately, it's breaking my heart, but I looked it up the other day, and it is, there, the big yard next to it, the huge field next to it that the kids played in is now a whole pile of um, apartments, which they're nice apartments, oh. but it just breaks my heart. But this, this particular house has a direct view of downtown. It's absolutely gorgeous. The view, the house mm -hmm. itself is just small and teeny but uh, anyway, so that's an actual building. But it could be, all right, it could also be a fictitious key off the tip of Florida like your upcoming <laughs> bookstorms and serenity. It could be mm -hmm. a tiny Tennessee town in the 1950s, like in Betty Thomas and Owen's book, Sutter's Landing. Um, it could be mm -hmm. a post-USA country. Now, this one was creepy to me. Uh, 2149, the year 2149, Revisionary by Kristen Hogriff. I mean, this is, mm -hmm. this is her story world. And she has imagined what the United States, which is no longer the United States, what it looks like a hundred years from now. Uh, I mean, it, it's creepy cool. So to summarize, you need to create your story world. You need to firmly place your scene in a setting. However, you can't start your book with a big old hairy long description. So what do you do? I mean, you've, you've got to do, it's like going to a road and saying no right turn, no left turn, and it's a dead end. You can't go anywhere else. There is an answer. Um, when I was teaching a very basic writing class, the idea that what I suggested to them was to start with several paragraphs describing the setting of a scene. Okay, I know I just told you not to do that. Just hang on with me. I'm getting there. So start with describing your setting just two or three paragraphs of a real good description. Then with that description written, or at least firmly in your mind, for those like you, Faye, that don't like to write it down, mm -hmm. you have it firmly in your mind, then you start writing your scene, what happens in the scene, step by step, and insert little tidbits of your completed description as you go so that you're not getting paragraphs of nothing but description, but you're feeding the reader little tidbits, little morsels that let them, that let them have a little bit more of a view of the room. Um, okay, I'm, I'm thinking, and this is something that is crazy. My girls and I will play these Nancy Drew computer games. We've had so much fun doing that. And from time to time, the the computer programmers will put Nancy in a maze or a labyrinth with only her flashlight. And so you can't see everything. You can only see the round bulb of the flashlight as she's going down and around these corners trying to find her way out of this labyrinth. And that's kind of what this kind of writing is. You're not dumping a whole scene or a whole setting on your reader. You're just feeding them a little flashlight glimpse at a time of the room yeah. or of the field or of the car or of the diner so that they can get an impression of what it's like without feeling like it's been dumped on them. Um, that first scene that I was talking about, about the, the ceiling fan, let me read that part to you because this is, this is the way Ain't Misbehaving starts. This is the very beginning of Ain't Misbehaving. First words, her future wasn't the only thing at stake. Annalie Chambers slipped into the bare cons consultation room with her mother, father, and attorney. Reporters filled the hallway and shouted questions as the door closed. She tugged at a stray blonde curl the August breeze had pulled from her hair clip and sank into the wooden chair. If only invisibility were possible, a desire initiated when they'd arrived at the Franklin County Courts building and cameras started flashing. 
Leaning against the high back of the seat, she stared at a ceiling fan, making a slow rotation. For a solid minute, she matched her breathing to the fan's rhythm. Now, I stopped at that point because that's when the dialogue begins. It's not a real long section, but through this section, there's movement, constant movement. There's motion, and there's thought. But like, like Faye was saying, it's not a whole page full of deep, you know, deep POV thought or internal thought, the thoughts are going on as the action is going on. Um, there are yeah. some words that you can catch. There's the stage is dressed. It has a bare room. Then the word consultation. Okay. That makes me think maybe a doctor's office. Um, the characters include attorney. Okay. That's not a doctor's office. And then it says court building. Okay. Well, that's not a doctor's office. Now we're in a court building, but we're not in a court room and there are photographers in the hall. Okay. That changes things and it's loud and it's noisy. And, and now this, this bare room has suddenly become, uh, I, I see the furniture. I see table, at least one table. I see at least one chair. Mm -hmm. I could see the gray tile floor and the plain drab walls without any extra help because now I know that I'm outside a courtroom, but I'm in a small room and it's a consultation room. It, it may even have like the frosted glass on the door, but either way, I can see this bare room now and, and a little bit of a handful of the characters that are in it, but it's even more important. Um, so that's, but this is just a romance. That's the way this romance begins. It's even more important though, um, as I was saying, for the story, for the plot to jump in on a suspense. I'm telling you, suspense readers, and I am one of those, we don't tolerate meandering. We just, you don't no. go around the bush, get into that bush and get into it right away. You know, one of the best suspense stories. Well, I can't say it was the best suspense story. It was good. But the best suspense beginnings that I ever read, I, I, I can't even remember the author. It just kills me. But this this particular, this girl is, she's walking to her, to the um, passenger side of her car to put something in the passenger side and someone on the driver's side grabs her and yanks her in and they start driving and she's jerking the wheel and they end up in a ditch and that all happens in a page and a half and I was riveted. Oh, wow. I, I, I was riveted. I, I had no idea what was going on but it did not matter. There was no way I was putting that book down. And it, it, it was just, it was so riveting. And that's, suspense readers want to get into it. Um, and so... Mm -hmm. Doing, you need something to grip in the very first sentence, and yet you still have to have scenery there. You still have to have a location. It has to be in evidence. Faye, talk to me about frozen notes. Share that opening because that's exactly what I'm talking about. Oh, okay. So you want me to just go ahead and read it, read the opening there, and then we'll, well talk yeah, about well, yeah, it. Well, yeah, I do. Yes, yes, I do. Okay. I'm telling you, that okay. opening is. Okay, thank you. A hush fell over the small crowd loitering outside Lyric Carter's house as paramedics placed the bodies of the two men, both encased in body bags, onto separate gurneys and wheeled them to the waiting ambulances. The sheriff's deputies had completed the gun residue test, and Lyric backed away from the woman. She fell hard into the chair at her kitchen table near the open front door and stared at her still bloody hands, not knowing what to do next. The winter's cold air gusted into the home, but the chill had set in the moment her husband, Brandon, had returned to the house, brandishing his handgun. Lyric fought to keep her tears at bay while investigators plundered through her house, looking for shell casings, additional bullet holes, and other evidence, but a murder-suicide was pretty cut and dry. The investigators wouldn't search for much else. Her body lifted with her sobs. If Braden had only looked at the documents he curried from Raleigh, he and Matthew Roberts would still be alive. He'd left them unopened on their table before a phone call sent him out. Before he returned, Lyric opened and then hid the evidence where no one would find it, prepared to face Brandon's wrath should it come to that. And that is just so you riveting. get to just, it's, it, this, the story is set in winter because I wanted to portray this last, the last book in the series with some stark reality. Something horrible has happened in the opening, but I wanted the readers to understand that what happened there at that time 
kind of out of their purview, but very fresh in Lyric's mind. It occurred because of the stark reality of the dysfunctional life this woman and those around her were living. And that's why I opened it with such a kind of a gory scene. And I had to think about it a lot. And I thought, no, that's, that's the only way this book can start. And then we begin to open up the secrets and what's going on around Lyric so that her life and the dysfunctionality can, can be cleared away. And she can learn some truths that she never knew about herself and about, and about other people around her. Well, and that, like I said, to me, that is just a riveting, from the moment I read Body Bags, I'm like, I am so in. Because it, it, yeah, you just like, oh my gosh, something's happened. And then I find out that she's in her house, her own house. Oh my gosh, her hands are bloody. What did she do? And I mean, yeah, to me, you did just what, what we were, what I was talking about. You fed little tidbits of this scene Mm -hmm. to where the it's like the flashlight the flashlight bulb or the circle got just a little big or a little bigger with every with every single thing um okay i'm going to change change direction here for a second because we were talking a little bit about beats and tags and i want to go into that because that's actually another way to firmly ground your dialogue um and it's through beats now we have talked about beats before back when we were talking about dialogue in, De- in December, but uh, 10 years ago when I first started writing novels, I had never even heard of the word. Well, of course, of course I've heard the word because I was a musician. So I knew what a beat was when it came to a drum mm-hmm. set, but I had no idea what it ca- what it meant when it came to writing. Um, Lena Nelson Dooley is a friend of mine. And uh, of course she is a profound, a prolific writer um, and writes, romance and writes uh, mostly historical romance but she writes contemporary also and she's extremely good she taught me quite a lot and in particular taught me that the way that I'd always learned to write was using what is called tags well I didn't know that Mm -hmm. but she she explained it to me that the he said she said asked answered replied all of that are all tags Um, and to go on to that I'm hearing today's in today's culture, for the most part, when people do use tags, they usually just use said because people don't bother to read whatever the next word is. They read the name of who actually was doing the talking, um, which I thought was kind of interesting. I do that, too. I never read what the actual word is. Um, But all the more reason to not use tags and to use instead a beat, which is a beat Mm -hmm. is a complete sentence that gives an action or a thought as well as identifying the speaker. So we have an action or some part of a description or an internal thought, but in any case, it's identifying the speaker, but it's adding so much more to the scene instead of just he said or she said. And she was, Lena was right. I Nowadays, I rarely use tags at all. I actually have full novels without a single tag in them. The beat gives extra insight like nobody's business. Um, Fake, I know you have some examples. Share something about about doing tags and beats. Share that with me because I know you have some. Yes, I do. And I get to share one of my favorite scenes from Storm and Serenity because it introduces my brooding Heathcliff-like character whose name is John Ryan. (laughs) So here I go. Yes, I love John. (laughs) The telephone rang and John reached for the receiver. Yes, John Ryan. Silence greeted him. Ryan and Parker, PA, may I help you? Johnny, uncertainty muffled Emily's voice. His past measures might cause her to fear his retribution, especially if she recognized Zach's nature in his actions. That thought even sickened him. Emily, he tightened his grip on the receiver, closing his eyes. Endless Endless weeks had passed since they'd last spoken. I turned in my notice here at Cornell. New York Downtown Hospital offered me a chance to return and resume my residency there if I'd like. Her words were tentative, as if she feared what he'd say. John rubbed his throbbing left temple. Why would you leave Cornell? It's closer to home. We both decided it was a better place for you to complete your residency. I don't want you working so so far from home. Isn't that why you left there? She, hands, she answered him with silence, the way she'd often submitted to his father. Why would you want to go back? 
I know you arranged Cornell to accept me. They told me. Yes, I did. He made a mental note to locate the informant. Whoever it was would be lucky if John allowed him to find a job in the darkest slums of the city. And wow. there you see, I did not use a tag. I did not, and on some things, I didn't use a beat, only because I knew that with the paragraph placement in the book, the reader was going to follow along, and I didn't leave too many open right. spaces. But all of that was mainly John's action and his, his deep point of view. And they still been for they thought that this she said. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, and okay, on that, on that, just as your work in dialogue, I know this is not something we mentioned back when we were talking about dialogue. This is just me, and I may be in the minority here, but if you have, if you're using, whether you're using beats or tags, you don't have to, it, to uh, identify every single sentence or every single change in speaker for instance no. what Faye was just talking about when she was talking about um at one point um silence greeted him and then so he spoke again well you could tell that he was the one that was speaking again by what he said he didn't have to say john said again or any of that mm-hmm. it, you could tell that it was yeah you could tell that it was him talking again however you if you've got two people talking you can swing that up to three unidentifieds in a row. But if you go more yes. than three, readers are going to lose it. And if you have yes. three people talking, then you can't do that. Because if you have three people talking, you really do have to make sure that you identify, if not every sentence, almost every sentence. Because it, somebody will say something and you're like, who just said that? because there are two people that could have responded to the one person that just talked. And so just as you're, as you're thinking through it, make sure you're reading your, your own dialogue, make sure you're reading it with fresh eyes to see how a reader who has no clue what you've got going on in your head is going to read that to make sure that they don't get lost. You know, Faye, I'm so excited. Oh, go ahead. I was going to say, and excuse me, I'm sorry, I got a little bit of that cold left. Um, What Uh I was thinking, as I was reading that, I was thinking, you know, the key to that, because as I'm reading it, I think you really need to know your character's voice. John is a very um, hurt man, and and when he's hurt, he inflicts hurt. So you can tell that that was him, and you could tell a little bit that that Emily is a little, not condescending, but she submits to him a little bit but at this point yes. she's a little angry with him at the same time and the key to that is always to keep your your dialogue with your character's action the one that's speaking the the deep point of view with the character that's speaking that paragraph is the greatest punctuation mark we have we can do tremendous things with it we can emphasize one line as a paragraph and make it stand uh-huh. out and make it dance for our characters. And that can be that deep point of view. So yep. and, and I just you know, wanted it all to, goes to back share to that. Point of view. It all goes mm-hmm. back to deep point of view, doesn't it? I, I, you know, they, even in the setting, it all goes back to deep point of view because your stage is not set by, as it was back, like I was saying, 10, 20, 15, whatever, 150 years ago even, it, it was set by an omniscient viewpoint that just told you about, you know, the narrator's voice telling you about the rolling hills and the grass and the butterflies. It, you're not set that way anymore. Your whole scene is set through the eyes of your main character, what they're feeling and with their filters and with their experiences. Uh, okay, I think now I think of Revelation, the book of Revelation, and how John was given these uh, portions of what's going to happen at at the end of the world, what's going to happen at the end of the age is the way it is, is spoken. Mm-hmm. And a lot of these things he's not going to necessarily recognize, but describe them in his own way. And, yes. you know, particularly like the bugs that are stinging and things like that. It just, those are things that 
when it happens, we're going to go, oh, that's what he was talking about. But at this point, he's described it from his point of view with as much as he had. That's what our characters have to do, too. They describe what's going on and describe their scene around them through their own filters. So if they're a kid from downtown Dallas, who have, who have never gone really anywhere else, they're not going to be able to explain what a crepe Suzette is very well. You know, they're going to think it's a little pancake with fruit in it. And so yeah. the, those, are the, those are the types of things that you have to, again, dig into your character and make it a deep POV so that, like Faye was saying, you know the voice of your character. You actually recognize their voice without even seeing a tag or a beat you can recognize their voice by the way they've said certain things and yes you can actually do that even in writing not having actually i mean you can tell Faye's voice sounds a lot different than margie's voice you can you can tell that but um even in writing you'll be able to tell your main character's voice because of the attitude with which they speak um with which you write mm -hmm. it um so anyway I am excited because we actually have some time left and we can get through what we didn't get through last week and probably even still let me tell you about, because uh, I want to talk to the listeners, but also about you, Faye. I'm really excited about this speaking stuff that I get to do. Um, so new year, we're not quite in the new year anymore, but we're still close to the new year. What was your number, mm -hmm. what is your number one goal for this year, Faye? It's, I, it's actually to write 1500 words a day, no matter what. And spiritually, the Lord laid on my heart the world, the world, the I hope He didn't lay the world on me. Uh, um, that, that <laughs> the word really faithfulness. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Take it back, Lord, please. <laughs> the, the, the word <laughs> faithfulness. <laughs> Is, and, and I'm really trying to move forward and be a faithful servant. And like with this cold and things like that, you know that, that things are going to thwart your, your good intentions. So. Yes. I'm 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 yes, striving. <laughs> well, and you know that's the thing about having goals is that you strive toward them, and you may not hit them entirely, but you're going to get a heck of a lot further than if you never had them to begin with. The word that the Lord True. laid on my heart this year it was it was a different word for me, family, and I say different because I mean I'm really into my family. My family we're very close. My brother and I are best friends. My sister-in-law and I were roommates. We're best friends. Um, my daughters, particularly the two that are still at home, are you know they're they're my accomplices in most everything that I do. <laughs> and they're, and, and they are, they are my, they are my buddies. They're my go-to pals. But I had no idea when the Lord put that word on my heart that it meant that for the most of 2018, um, this romance author right here is going to be helping my oldest daughter plan her wedding. Yay! Yay! Congratulations! I, I, thank you. I am so excited. They just got engaged this past Saturday, and already we are in the throes of it. We went visiting venues last night and had a blast. The, there it was my, my daughter, who's going to be the bride, and my twins, who are my accomplices, and we had a blast going from venue to venue, and I have been taking plenty of notes. I have a feeling some of this fun is going to show up in the sequel to Ain't Misbehaving or into the third book of that series, which is actually about a wedding planner. And I, that, that book is, I've already written the first five chapters of it is so much fun because she just gets into so much <laughs> trouble. But for right integrity for our company, Faye, my focus this year is all wrapped up in the word intentional. Um, I, I was learning so much in 2017. It was my first year as a publisher, but we put out 13 books. I was so pleased that we were able to put oh, out man. generally a book a month. This year, however, we have 24 now on our schedule. Um, as of today, this very day, we have put out three books already. And by the way, for the rest of the evening, for those of you that are listening, if you happen to be listening on February 6, 2018, you will find that today's release, our newest book, it is a creepy suspense. And when I say creepy, it's a stalker suspense. I love it. It is mm. so creepy, but it is yikesful. Anyway, it is 40% off today celebrating its release release day. It will not be 40% off tomorrow. So take advantage if you can. Um, it is, an, like I said, an intense suspense. It is available at, at 
Amazon, and the name is Haven's Hope. It is Haven's Hope by Dina Netherton at Amazon. So you'll want to take advantage of that one. But I have to tell you, Faye, I absolutely mm -hmm. love my job. Um, two reasons why I love my job. I am always surrounded by incredible books, and I love working with amazing authors. I wouldn't change it for the world. Oh. I wouldn't change what I do for the world either, and I think you're a tremendous publisher. So I'm very happy oh. where I am, and I'm all those things that are conjured up in my head, they'll get on paper soon. <laughs> Uh, well, I'm happy where you are, too. Okay, so i got to tell you before we sign off, though, I'm really excited because in the next couple of months, I get to actually go talk and, and talk to people about publishing, and that's exciting. Um, at the end of this month, I am one of the featured authors at the Lampasas Library, and I'm going to go and talk about Christian fiction and why it's not subpar. I don't know where we got in our head that that, you know, mainstream fiction was the real stuff and Christian fiction is just its, you know, ugly stepbrother. But that's kind of what what the what the general consensus is. And so I'm gonna kinda go and talk to just mainstream readers and let them know that they can actually pick up a Christian book and expect a really, really good story, a riveting uh a riveting character plot and a character arc that is timeless. And I, I'm so I'm really excited about talking in Lampasas um, at the Lampasas Public Library. And then in March, I get to go to Waco and talk with a group of authors about publishing and what they can do to stand out, ways that they can make a difference, ways that they can help their. Um, their manuscripts stand out, their proposals stand out, and kind of do a Q&A there. Um, and then in April, I get to go all the way to Houston. I'm going to the Woodlands, um, the ACFW chapter down in the Woodlands, and I'm talking about uh -huh. the um, the psychology of a hero down there. So I, I'm oh, wow. really excited. I, I get to actually <coughs> – I'm sorry. <coughs> I'm sorry. I hate you to and me. We make a pair. <laughs> I'm telling you, but I feel like I'm I'm actually on tour. It's so cool. Yeah, it makes me wish I lived in in Texas and I could just follow around and listen to you. <laughs> but when you're in Waco, get me a magnolia cupcake, will you? <laughs> oh yeah, I'll think about that. I'll think about that. I'll send it to you over the internet. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, so. I love doing this radio show for you listeners. We have had so much fun. We continue to have so much fun doing this. Next month, we're looking at doing tips for your editing, for your actual editing, ways to polish the tar out of your story, because it does need to be polished. I know that you get it the best mm -hmm. you can, and you put it on publisher's desk, and you think, well, they'll accept it. They'll, they'll look over it if it's a good story. Well, I'm telling you now, if it's a good story, you're right. They'll look over it. If it's an exceptional story, they'll look over it. If it's a good story, then they may not look over it. Um, because mm -hmm. if it's a good story, just like everybody else's story is good and other people's stories are polished, that's less work that your editor is going to have to do. That's less money that they're going to have to put out on that manuscript of yours. And so you want it to be really polished. And so there are some tricks about editing that, um, that you need to hear that we'll be sharing next month. If you have any suggestions or questions or tips, would you drop a line to Faye and me and we'll now, you can reach us at downpublishinglane at gmail.com. Now, remember that lane is L-A-I-N-E. It has an I in it. So it's downpublishinglane at gmail.com. And before we sign off, I want to give you a heads up on some coming sales. This month, we have four, month, four books that are on sale. We have Dina's Haven's Hope that just came out today. And then this week, we also have a devotional by Peggy Cunningham. It's called Dancing Like Bees. And then starting Sunday, Annabelle's Ruth is... That'll be on sale. And then um, February 18th, your romance, Therese, goes on sale, Faye. And then the last week yeah. of the month is set aside for a young adult book called 10 Steps to Girlfriend Status by Cynthia T. Tony. Those are all ebooks. They're all going to be 99 cents. You can find them at our website or you can join our email lease, list 
and get weekly notices about our sales. Um, and for those of you hoping for publication, keep writing and keep learning. And Faye, we're going to say bye. I'm glad you're here. All right. I'm, I am so happy to be here. Thank you for letting me, letting me hang on. <laughs> All right. We'll talk to you again next month. Remember, it's first Tuesday at 7 p.m. We'll see you then. Bye, everyone. This has been Publishing Lane with your host, Margie Lane Klubine, Executive Director of Write Integrity Press. If you'd like to learn more about Margie and her publishing company, visit writeintegrity.com. That's W-R-I-T-E-I-N-T-E-G-R-I-T-Y dot com.